1 Corinthians uh, and chapter 5, and we're going to read the whole chapter. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of, the, of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened, with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, in that case, <clears throat> in that case you, would have, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. What makes a church a true church? How can you distinguish a a true Christian body of believers from a, a false church, one that you shouldn't attend and worship with? Well, in the Belgic Confession, which is one of the great Reformed confessions of faith, the author's sought to address that question in chapter 29 in a a chapter entitled The Marks of a True Church. Ah, it's going to go up. I was going to ask you, I wonder what you would have in your minds as the marks of a true church. But in the confession, the Belgic confession, they say this, the true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. We'd agree with that, wouldn't we? It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And then it practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding to Jesus Christ as the only head. Now, I wonder how many of us would probably really clearly have had one and two from that list in our minds. But how many would have thought of three immediately? That a true church should practice church discipline. Well, what is church discipline? Church discipline is the process by which the gathered church seeks to challenge and confront members who are unrepentant about public and significant sin. And it is one way in which God helps, God gives us to help each other to keep on walking with the Lord. But it's a sad thing that 
not a lot of churches practice biblical church discipline. And some Christians are very nervous about this idea. There can be many reasons for that, but one reason could be that we have absorbed a powerful narrative in our world. And that narrative is that love means acceptance. Our world tells us that. It tells us that the most important way that you can love someone is by accepting their choices, whatever they might be. And some would quote Matthew 7, some Christians would quote Matthew 7 verse 1 to justify that love means you should never challenge, where Jesus there says, do not judge, for you too will be judged. People read that verse and say, well, who are we to judge? Who are we to challenge one another in that sense? Now, Jesus' words there are to challenge us about the attitudes of our hearts and our actions towards one another personally. And they also are a strong challenge, aren't they, to primarily focus upon our own sins and have our eyes on those things. But to use them to justify a total acceptance of everything someone might do is to use them in an unbalanced way. Jesus can't be saying it's wrong for one Christian to challenge another Christian personally. Because later in Matthew's gospel, he tells us we should do that very thing. In Matthew 18 and verse 15, he says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their faults just between the two of you. It also can't mean that it's wrong for the church as a body to challenge the actions in one of their members. Because in Matthew 18, Jesus calls the church to speak directly to someone who is caught in sin. So we have to understand God's word in its fullness. And it cannot mean, judge not that you will be judged. That cannot mean that it's always the case that we should accept everything. But our world has redefined love. This is the key thing we need to see. It's redefined love away from a biblical model of love to its own model of love. And in doing so, we have been taught that we must never challenge someone's actions or choices. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer saw this shift coming when he wrote these words in 1939 in his book, Life Together. He said this, Nothing can be more cruel, now what would our world say, than to challenge someone for how they live. But what does he say? Nothing is more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. It is a ministry of mercy. And friends, my burden this evening is that we might all see that biblical church discipline is a ministry of mercy. This evening we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul is addressing a situation of sexual morality in the Corinthian church. And it's a shocking situation in verse 1, because you read that a man is sleeping with his father's wife, probably his stepmother. Now, this action is so very wrong that not even the pagans in Corinth tolerated this. Now, that's saying something. 
because there wasn't much that was forbidden in Corinth. So notorious was a city for evil that to Corinthianize someone was to shorthand say they were engaging in great sin. So the city was an incredibly sinful city, but even the city, the people of that city, the pagans there, he says in verse 1, would not tolerate this. Because this man's sin was public, it was serious, and he was not repentant. But in this passage, Paul is not particularly focused upon that sin itself and why it's so serious. In a few weeks' time, we'll come uh, to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and the second half of that chapter, where we will see why sexual sin is so very serious, and we'll come to think about it in the next few weeks. But this week, as we come to chapter 5, we need to focus upon what shocks Paul in this passage. And it's not the sin of the man that shocks Paul. What is it that shocks Paul, friends? It is that the church is willing to tolerate this within those who are accepted as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the shocking thing. In fact, if we look at verse 2, it's not just that they will tolerate this. They are proud of the situation in some ways. Now, that can't mean that they are proud of the sin. don't think that's the case. But, but it seems perhaps that they are proud of this man, Or perhaps they are proud of their welcoming attitude towards him, even though he is unrepentant. Perhaps he was an important figure. And having him within the church made them feel good about themselves. That had been a problem, hadn't it, with the Corinthian church, this cult of personality and celebrity. But whatever brought about their proud hearts, they should have felt a very different emotion. Paul says, verse 2, you shouldn't be proud. Rather, you should be mourning. Because mourning is always the right attitude to sin. And their mourning of heart should lead them to action. That is what Paul is driving at right through this passage. He wants to move them from inaction on this issue towards action and dealing with it. So as we look at this passage, we're going to see that Paul gives two clear reasons why we and any church should be committed to church discipline, and why it is rightly one of the marks of a true church. So why should we practice church discipline? And we see, first of all, that we should practice church discipline because God says that we should. God says that we should. There are many reasons why we find church discipline hard. We fear that it will be seen as unkind by those who receive it or others who look on. And that, friends, is a possibility. We're conscious that the conversations around it will be uncomfortable and difficult. And that is always the case, because we're talking about sin. We're concerned that someone could turn against the church or against us and make false accusations about the church. And that can and does happen. And it can be done in wrong ways. And that can, be, that can cause great damage. And that has sadly been the case. All of those things are true and possible. But none of them is a good reason not to do it. Because something else is more important. And it is that God categorically tells us that we should. Look down at verses 12 and 13, which both contain one implied and one explicit, a command to act. 
If you look at verse 12, uh, Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? And then he asks a rhetorical question, which is an implied command, because he says, are you not to judge those inside the church? And then verse 13, at the end of there, end of the passage, he says, God will judge those outside. Then he quotes in Deuteronomy and says, expel the wicked person among you. So God commands the church to do this. Those are clear commands, and they stand in stark contrast to the prevailing spirit of our age that says, who are we to judge? Because brothers and sisters, God calls us to this as a church. God calls us to act in particular situations for his glory, for the purity of his people, and for the good of the person who is straying away from the Lord. Now, we need to be really clear about the situations where this should happen. Sin is a sad reality in our lives. And as Simeon was reminding us, we will continue to struggle with sin until we get to heaven. Now, we can make progress. Praise God we can make progress. We can pursue holiness and praise God we can grow in holiness. But perfectionism is not a biblical doctrine. We were made perfect as we come into heaven by God and his work. And that is why the gospel is always great news, because it means that for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ by faith, for those who are repentant about their sin, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross through his death cleanses all your sin. The best news in all the world, isn't it? That every morning you wake up and you can think, I'm forgiven if you're a Christian. And every night you can go to bed and know I'm right with God because I look to Jesus. And so it's really important that we see as we read these verses and we think, well, I'm struggling with sin, but I hate my sin. I want to, and I seek to turn from it each day. But if that's me and I struggle with sin, does that mean that I should face church discipline? The answer is no, friends. No, because there is a very specific kind of person in view here. And it's someone who is a professing Christian who says, I know and love Jesus, but who will not repent about a serious sin. That's the situation in view. And not only is a specific person, it's also a specific kind of sin that's in view here. Now, I have a confession to make. I... Um, sin against my wife regularly because when I finish my red bush tea and I put the cup down by the sink, I leave the tea bag in the cup. And Naomi has said to me many times, Matthew, it would help a lot if you put the tea bag out of the cup. I don't deliberately leave it in the cup, but I forget. And that's a sin because she's asked me not to do it. And I should seek to try and do that. But not all sins are of the same kind. And those are not things for church discipline, I trust. Yeah. But, look down at verse 11. Look down at verse 11. These are the things that Paul is particularly focusing on. He is thinking of serious sins, and there are serious sins. We'll see that in the coming weeks. Look at verse 11. He speaks of sexual morality, of greed, of idolatry, of slander, of drunkenness and of swindling. They are serious sins, 
and many of them are public sins. So the kinds of situations where church discipline is appropriate and we're called to engage in it is when you have a professing believer who is sinning in a serious and public way who is not repentant. And is actually saying, I can keep doing this, it's fine. I won't turn from it. And when that is the case, Paul explains what we should do here in this passage. He explains the process in verses 4 and 5. Now, here the translation NIV isn't the best. The ESV helps us more about understanding what's happening. And so here's how the ESV renders verse 4 and 5. It says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the church assembles as a body in the name of Jesus. And as they prayerfully act according to God's word, there, Paul says, they act with the power of the Lord Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that the church has been entrusted with a solemn responsibility as it gathers and does this. Because as they gather in Christ's name and remove another Christian from membership, they do something that is very significant. They mirror what God does in heaven in that sense. They reflect what God is doing in heaven. In Matthew 16, verse 19, Jesus says that the church has been given the keys of the kingdom. And we, as the church, are called to declare the gospel... That is to speak of, of saving faith in Jesus Christ. And we are to teach what true conversion is. What it means to be converted and truly a Christian. And then as far as we are able, as a church, recognizing we can't see into someone's hearts, we are called, having been entrusted with those keys of the kingdom, to declare, as far as we can see, whether someone is a Christian or not. It's a solemn responsibility, friends, isn't it? So when we come together as a membership and we welcome someone into membership, we are doing something really significant. We are affirming them as a believer in the Lord's. So it's not just an administrative process. It's a very important thing. It's a prayerful assessment of our Christian testimony by a church body. It should be a reason to give us assurance as a believer because other Christians have heard our testimony and affirmed it in that sense. So we do something positive in that sense as we receive someone into membership. But also, when we then remove someone from membership whose life has strayed from God's word in this serious and ongoing unrepentant way, we are not just tidying up the membership list. We are giving them a solemn warning about their eternal state. Because we're saying... That given how you are living in serious public and unrepentant sin, then we are not sure that you are a Christian. Now, I think if we're honest, friends, many of us are worried about what other people say and think about us, aren't we? But of all the things that someone might say to you, this is surely one of the most serious of things that can be said to you. And that seriousness that someone says, I'm not sure you're a Christian. You, you might be professing this, 
But the way you're living is so far from this. That's a very serious thing. And so as someone is put out of the church in that sense, as someone is handed over to Satan, that is what's going on. And and the seriousness of what it is, it is brought out in the term that Paul uses in verse 5, where he says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, what does that mean? Well, well, in terms of the, the, the true spiritual sense, in the world, there are only really two kings. In the truest sense, there are two kings. Who is there? There's King Jesus, the true king, and there's King Satan, who is a false and evil king. And every human being is living subject to one of them. And in church discipline, the church body is saying to someone, we don't see you living in submission to King Jesus. And so we can only conclude that you are not part of his kingdom, which means that you are part of Satan's kingdom, being handed over to Satan. And then Paul says they are being given over for the destruction of the flesh. Now, that could mean many things. But I think it must include at least now that they, having been put out of the church in that sense, having been had that declaration that we're not sure that you're a believer based on how you're living and the inconsistency there with your profession, then that person comes to experience something of the physical, emotional, and spiritual pain that comes from knowing that you're a sinner without the confidence that you can draw near to God through faith in Jesus Christ by his grace. That is a kind of destruction, isn't it? Because to be without God and to be without hope, well, it does eat you up on the inside, doesn't it? It's that kind of inner pain that comes in that. Now, remember, friends, the goal of this, that someone might live in that sense of being, being, uh, being their, their brothers and sisters saying, we're not sure that you're a believer, is not to be vindictive or unkind it is look at verse end of verse five so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the lord that someone might come to their senses to wake up to how they're living and turn back to the lord but then if someone doesn't paul says we need to do something else as well jump down to verses nine to eleven because there we are taught that for their good We are to keep on reminding someone of the seriousness of their situation. Paul says in verse 9, do not associate with them. Now, I don't think that means we should ignore someone totally. But it does mean that we shouldn't relate to them as we did before. We don't treat them as a brother and sister in the Lord, who perhaps just happened to have fallen out with one particular church. We don't do that. At the end of verse 11, Paul says that we should not eat with them. Now, that's certainly a reference to the Lord's Supper, but I think it could also mean other meals, because in Paul's day and in our day, to eat a meal with someone is to communicate a kind of acceptance and welcome, isn't it? Now, what that means in practice will vary according to the situation, but there should be a marked difference in how we relate to them this process having happened. Because for their good, we are saying to them, if you are unwilling to change, then our interactions together need to change so that you might be reminded of the seriousness of your position. Now, as we work through all of that, 
there's no getting away from the fact this will be hard to practice and hard to do, is there? Rejection, accusation, strife, and pain are very likely. And so, friends, our manner in all of this should be sadness and mourning. That's what Paul says there, verse 2. Mourning over sin and never an attitude of vengeance or vindictiveness. But we do this because the most important thing before anything else is whether someone is right with God. And where they will spend eternity is our greatest concern for them. Now, to help us to see this is the right thing to do, having explained what that process looks like, Paul then comes to the second reason why we should do this. We should do it because God commands it, and he tells us what that looks like. But then he says we should do this because it is good for everyone involved. And he addresses two groups of people here. as He talks about the good that comes from church discipline. He says, first of all, it is good for the unrepentant sinner, verse 5. We see there at the end of verse 5 that the goal in all of this is that the person who is caught in sin might come to their senses and be saved on the day of the Lord. So our purpose is that they might know repentance and change and return to the Lord and his people. And that is why we call it church discipline, not punishment. We want them to return to the Lord. And so all the way through this, we are praying for them. We're making it clear there's a way back. We are acting with tears in our eyes and mourning in our hearts. But it is so important that we settle in our minds that this process is good for someone. That it's good for them when the world tells us it is not loving to judge and that we must accept everyone however they live, we must say no. Because our greatest concern is for their eternal soul. And as Bonhoeffer reminded, we will not be so cruel as to leave them in their sin. We will love them enough to say, brother, to say, sister, how can you live like this? Come back to God in repentance. Come back because, as we know that wonderful parable of the prodigal son, as we return in repentance, what do we find? We find the Father's arms are open. We find that forgiveness is always on offer if we come in repentance and faith. Friends, I'm really burdened that we might grasp this because I fear that we are going to see increasingly in our land churches giving in over clear moral issues where God's word is abundantly clear. And the danger is that others move away from the truth that we might possibly move with them, or we might at least stop speaking about sin, or we might stop acting upon serious public sins among the body of God's people. That is a real danger. That's why we prayed this morning for the Anglican Church. It's one of the reasons. We pray because our burden is for them, and we pray because we are concerned that will affect other churches. And so when we read that six Anglican bishops are now prepared to say the church should now perform same-sex marriages, when that is a clear denial of the teaching of Scripture, I fear that is going to be the first of many denials in what Scripture teaches, where those entrusted with leadership of God's people will turn away from God's word 
in their consciences, if they can deny God's word on that point, on something as so clear as that, for the goal that they won't alienate a generation, those were their words, what will they compromise over next? And so when that's the culture around us, we are going to be tempted, because we live in the world, we are going to be tempted to go soft with those churches that are going to do that. And this is why we must settle in our minds that where God's word is clear, we will be clear. And we will love one another enough to speak God's word to one another and to challenge each other where we are straying from the truth. Are you committed to that? Settle that in your mind. Be clear. If you're not, seek God's help. Talk to others for help. Because we need to be alert to these things. We have to believe it's right to challenge about sin. We have to care enough about people to tell them. So it's good for people that we do this. It's good for ourselves that we do this. And this is what we come to in the second point. It's not just good for the unrepentant sinner. It's also good, verse 6 and 8, for the whole church. And here, we need to see that in church discipline, there is a warning to all of us as God's people. Because through this process, we warn each other about the seriousness of turning away from the Lord. You know I'm not an emotionally expressive man. That's how I'm made. But every time I attend a wedding service and I witness the bride and the groom exchange their vows, I am moved to tears. And I am moved to tears because I'm reminded of the same promises I made to Naomi and of how important it is before God to keep them. And church discipline is a bit like that. Because it's a reminder, it's a warning to us all to say, we belong to the Lord, friends. We say to one another, we belong to him and we need to remain faithful to him. That's the warning. We need to keep on daily mortifying, that is turning from sin. We need to keep on daily coming repentance before the Lord. We need to come daily seeking the Spirit's help to change and to grow. So there is a protection of the church in the reminder to one another as we practice church discipline. But there is another way in which this is a good thing for the whole church. Because in doing so, we are protecting our own attitudes towards sin. Now, if you look down at verses uh, 6 and 7, you see that Paul uses a, a picture of making bread to make this point. He's thinking about the attitude towards sin in one another. And to understand the picture, we need to know how they got yeast into dough in the past. Now, when my wife makes bread, she goes and she buys dried yeast in a packet. And that dried yeast is how the bread grows. But they didn't have packets of dried yeast in the ancient world. I'll try and keep going and see if we can beat the fireworks. What they had uh, was a small amount of old dough that they took from an old batch and they allowed it to get older and older and become yeastier and yeastier. And what they would do is they would take a little bit of that old batch, they would add it to their new dough, and that would bring in the yeast into the new dough. 
So if you've ever made sourdough, I understand this is the process of making sourdough. But you couldn't keep that old dough forever. Because if you did, <laughs> over time, the bacteria would grow and grow and go, and it would get really, really smelly and really, really nasty. And if you get that into your bread, that's dangerous. You don't want to do that. So every now and again, you have to start fresh. You clear out the old dough, the old yeasty dough, and you make a new batch of it, and you use that to make your dough going forward. So what's the picture? Well, it's saying this. If we don't practice church discipline, it's like having old batches of yeasty dough that is now contaminated with germs that you are working into that fresh batch of dough. And it only takes a few situations where we are not addressing serious sin in the lives of God's people and the effects can be catastrophic for the life of the church because it dulls our consciences towards sin. I know of a church where a number of men committed adultery, leaving their wives and families, and it happened in quick succession over a period of a few years. And all the men knew each other. And it was as if their sin spread from one to the next. A little leaven, a little yeast, leavens a whole batch of dough. We need to be careful, friends. This passage is a solemn warning to us all tonight. A little while ago, I took my car in for an annual service. And at the end, when the mechanic was going through what he'd done, he highlighted a problem with the car that I knew I needed to address, but I'd been avoiding it. And, and when he highlighted the issue, he warned me that if I didn't address it, the car would soon break down. And as he told me that, it was like I was being challenged because I knew I shouldn't have left that thing, I should have addressed it, but I'd just done nothing about it. And this passage, friends, is not just about church polity. This passage is a warning about two very real dangers that we need to guard against, and we close with these. The first danger is a collective danger, and it's this. It is possible for evangelical churches to tolerate public, serious sin like this and do nothing. Do you know how you know that? The Corinthians did. They're described in chapter 1 as those sanctified in Christ Jesus. They are a church. But they were tolerating sin. It's a big warning and it is so easy to look outside to other churches for bad examples. But God's word calls us to watch ourselves, doesn't it? that we may not get this wrong. And so, friends, we need to love Christ and we need to love each other enough to be willing to practice this according to God's word. That's the first warning. But the second warning is a personal one. And it's this, that it is possible for professing Christians to get caught in the most serious of sins. How do we know that? That's exactly the situation here, isn't it? If someone is a true Christian, 
and they are caught in sin, they will return to the Lord because God won't let them go. And this man who is doing this was a professing Christian. And the reason that there is that hope at the end of verse 5, that he could repent and return to the Lord and be saved, that's a great thing, but it's a warning in itself, isn't it? Because it means it's possible to follow that pattern. To sin so greatly that this has to be the process the church goes through, and yet to return to the Lord, which is a wonderful thing that that can happen. But I, need us to feel, I want us to feel the warning, friends, that, that we could be on that path. That the process is there means it's a possibility. That believers can stray into the most serious of sins. And so we need to watch our lives carefully. And part of the reason for church membership is to have a group of fellow Christians who have promised to watch over us in love. You know, it is right that part of church membership is that we come together and we make decisions as a church and we come together and we talk things through as a church. That's a right part of it. But also, and we mustn't forget this, a key thing we are doing for one another in membership is committing to care for one another, committing to watch over each other, committing to be willing to go through this process because we love each other. And we need that, friends. And maybe this passage has challenged you tonight about something that you know you need to take action about. Maybe there's a sin in your life that you're seeking to justify, and deep down, you know it's wrong. Friends, as we close, can I say to you, the best protection is to keep on to coming back to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in verses 7 and 8. He sends the church back to the cross. He says, we know that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. We are cleansed in him. And so we want to live today, not in malice and wickedness, but in sincerity and truth. He's saying, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus that is one of the key ways in which you deal with sin because it is impossible to be taken up with Jesus and with sin at the same time. That's how we watch over ourselves personally. And so friends, if you're caught in something this evening, look to Jesus. Remember all that he has done. And as you do that, God will give strength to turn from sin. David Brainerd was a missionary to Native Americans, and he experienced this very pattern in his short life as a missionary pastor. He said these words, I never got away from Jesus and him crucified. I found that when my people were gripped, were gripped by the great evangelical doctrine of Christ and him crucified, I had no need to give them instructions about morality. I found that one followed as sure as the sure and inevitable fruit of the other. So brothers and sisters, as we close, fill your vision with Jesus. And as you do, you will find your eyes turning from sin. Our closing hymn is all about that. It's all about turning our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we sing, let's pray. And then we'll stand and respond to God's word. Our God and our Father, we thank you that in your great wisdom,
you have not left us alone as believers, but you have put us into church families. You have put us into bodies of your people where we promise and commit to care for one another and to love each other enough that we would challenge the sin that can be in our lives. We pray this evening that as your people, we might have that love for each other, that we would be willing to be obedient to your word and to do this for each other, that we might return to you. Lord God, we thank you for the wisdom of your word. And we pray that all that we've looked at this evening, you might protect us from sin. That you by your spirit might help us to be daily turning from it. That we might be gently, lovingly, drawing aside one another, encouraging each other to keep on walking with Jesus. And we pray that by your grace and by your spirit, you would fill our eyes with the Lord Jesus and all that he means. May our vision be full of him. And as we do that, may the things of this world and the sin that so easily entices us grow strangely dim. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.